oligarchs' yachts are seized, then taxpayers cover the bills. Falmouth Harbour, Antigua, and Barbuda. Two dozen armed police and five FBI agents fanned out across the harbour here early one morning last year. They raided the Alpha Nero, a two hundred seventy foot mega yacht, believed to be owned by Andrei Grigoryevich Guriev, a Russian phosphates magnate, sanctioned by the U.S. for links to President Vladimir Putin. Ever since the one hundred twenty million dollar yacht, nearly the length of a football field, and outfitted with an infinity pool that transforms into a dance floor, has sat idle in this sleepy harbor. It's a floating reminder of the West's economic war against Russia and the difficulties in managing and offloading billions in seized Russian assets. It has also become a nightmare for this tiny country of ninety-three thousand. Taxpayers of this cash-strapped nation are currently paying twenty-eight thousand dollars a week to maintain the stationary boat, including the salary of an Italian captain, and two thousand a day in diesel to keep its air conditioning running. If it turns off, mold will spread through the vessel within forty-eight hours, potentially damaging its hardwood interior and the mural painting on board. A skeleton crew of six, having eaten through the boat's supply of champagne, lobsters, and caviar, toils to ensure the vessel can one day be sailed away. You take thousand-dollar bills, tear them up, and just keep going," said Tom Peterson, the dock, the dock master of the marina, making a ripping-up motion with his hands. Since Russian tanks rolled into Ukraine, dozens of governments launched an unprecedented effort to pressure Putin to end the war by going after his well-heeled cronies. The Russian elites, proxies, and oligarchs' task force—a multinational government group that coordinates on sanctions—reported in March that an estimated 58 billion of oligarchs' assets, including yachts, mansions, and investments, have been frozen or blocked because of the owners' links to the Kremlin. It has made life uncomfortable for Putin's allies by blocking access to their wealth. As the war has dragged on into moves to permanently confiscate their assets, yet freezing an asset doesn't immediately give authorities the right to take ownership and sell it. In many cases, that comes only after complicated legal efforts. To show those sanctioned people committed crimes, a process 
that could take months or years. European countries have launched more than 300 criminal investigations against sanctioned Russians. The US Justice Department has a team of 50 officials building criminal cases it hopes can rake in hundreds of millions of dollars by selling sanctioned Russian assets, which in turn can be handed over to help rebuild Ukraine. So far, the total from the assets delivered to Ukraine by the US is just 5.4 million, the US said. The UK hasn't turned any frozen assets into funds, neither has the European Union. The costs for Ukraine are huge, and morally, I think it is a no-brainer that the party that inflicts that cost and a horrible war should pay, says Anders Anlid, who heads the EU's working group on frozen Russian assets. But that has to be done under the law. In practical terms, it is often taxpayers who are on the hook for eye-watering bills to maintain a fleet of high-end yachts and mansions while sanctions remain in place. Efforts to bypass drawn-out legal proceedings in Western courts to sell the assets are coming up short. Earlier this year, the Antiguan government, arguing the Alfa Nero, posed a risk to its harbour in case a hurricane sank it, passed new legislation and seized the ship outright. This summer, it tried to sell the Alfa Nero to ex-Google chief executive Eric Schmidt for $67 million, but a company linked to Guriev launched a last-minute legal fight to block the sale, and Schmidt got cold feet, according to people familiar with the matter. The Antiguan government is now trying to find a new buyer. Detective work. There is a long legal path between freezing an asset, which bans the owner from using it, and confiscating the asset, which means the state can take ownership and sell it. Being sanctioned isn't in itself a crime, so the state has to prove the sanctioned person both owns the asset, which is often held by a maze of shell companies, and broke a law, which can justify having it confiscated as proceeds of a crime. The US is leaving a lot of money on the table from the asset seizures, Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco testified before Congress in April. DOJ officials have asked Congress to broaden the government's ability to turn over proceedings to Ukraine, including by expanding the range of seized assets they can transfer. The DOJ has seized two mega yachts, it says, belongs to sanctioned Russians and is in the process of trying to confiscate them, according to officials. One is the 300 million Amadea that taxpayers paid to have sailed to San Diego from Fiji. The other is the Tango, a 90 million yacht that U.S. authorities say is owned by Viktor Vexelberg. 
Fix Selberg is accused by the US of tax fraud, money laundering, and using fake documents and shell companies to avoid sanctions and hide his ownership of the tango. US investigators sometimes spend years building a case strong enough to take before a judge for a seizure warrant. That involves shoe leather detective work, such as poring over bank and property records, and also mapping out connections and traveling the globe to talk to witnesses, said David Lim and Michael Koo, DOJ of officials leading task force Klepto Capture, which enforces sanctions on Russians. In Italy, law enforcement officials have seized at least four yachts and 20 luxury homes, as well as cars, artwork and other items since spring 2022, according to a list of frozen assets reviewed by the Wall Street Journal. The Italian government last year earmarked 13.7 billion, or about 14.8 million, to cover urgent maintenance costs of assets, such as yachts and villas. The actual costs are much higher, Italian officials said. Our problems are the yachts, said an Italian official. If the war continues, the running costs could potentially exceed their actual value. As a rule of thumb, big yachts cost around 10% of their value a year to maintain, said Benjamin Maltby, a lawyer at Keystone Law, which specializes in advising on mega yachts. Their hulls need to be regularly scraped and air conditioning units run nearly round the clock. The crew also needs paying, so does insurance and rent in marinas. Forcing owners themselves to pay for their upkeep is complicated. The sanctioned parties aren't allowed to use the financial system to transfer funds without special permission from governments, which can take months or years to obtain. Some European countries, such as Spain, allow the sanctioned owners to move funds to pay the maintenance costs. Chinese Merchants Struggle on TikTok by Raffaele Huang, Singapore As TikTok pushes to expand its e-commerce business globally, the viral short video app is turning to a group of sellers for help, Chinese merchants. TikTok is hoping such vendors will expand its online retail offerings. However, the app's background as a haven for catchy dances and lip syncs has confounded even experienced sellers more accustomed to retailing on traditional shopping platforms such as Amazon.com. Lina Pan, a 46-year-old Chinese merchant based in Changzhou, southern China, sold soap dispensers and shampoo bottles through a store she set up on TikTok. She paid 4300 for access to a seven-hour pre-recorded class 
in which the instructor promised to unveil the secrets to earning millions on TikTok. The course led her to post videos dishing out household tips, such as using Coca-Cola to remove stains from toilet bowls and frying pans, and nifty ways to slice up pineapples. The millions didn't materialize. Selling on TikTok is just not as easy as I thought it would be," said Pan, who shut her store after five months of trying. In September, TikTok expanded the e-commerce service TikTok Shop to all of its 150 million users in the U.S., the app's largest market. After testing the service with select users there for months, in August, TikTok, owned by Beijing-based ByteDance, started allowing China-based sellers to open storefronts on the app. In the U.S. market, it has also been testing a new business model of selling products on behalf of Chinese vendors, a model similar to Amazon's "Sold by Amazon" program, putting it in competition with popular shopping platforms such as Shein and Temu. ByteDance executives bet that online shopping, driven by its powerful algorithm, will become the company's new growth engine, aiming to quadruple global transactions on TikTok to 20 billion this year, from less than 5 billion last year. To bridge the cultural divide, TikTok has shared memos with Chinese merchants, explaining customer lifestyles and habits in the U.S. and other markets, as well as offered free classes to help vendors on board. Outside the company, a cottage industry of third-party agencies has mushroomed in China. Offering to help merchants like Pan start and succeed in selling on the app, TikTok isn't available in China, and Chinese sellers have to use software tools that mask their IP addresses to access the platform. Some agencies charge as much as twenty thousand to join learning trips to visit factories in popular Chinese manufacturing hubs. And to attend networking sessions for a chance to meet privately with advisors. Despite China's rich experience as the factory floor of the world, businesses are finding that selling on TikTok isn't as straightforward. Learning to navigate marketing on social media, picking the right products, and avoiding cultural faux pas. Are all part of the challenges faced by Chinese merchants. Some of the vendors also say their margins are being squeezed by TikTok's desire to compete with low-price platforms, Shein and Temu in online retail. Yang Guang, a maker of towels and mops, hired a former saleswoman at Beijing's Silk Street Market. A shopping area known for catering to foreign tourists, to sell his products via live streaming on TikTok, he was impressed by her English-speaking capabilities. 
After months of trying, sales from the channel were weak. His saleswoman was too traditional. Pitching products like an infomercial, said the businessman from Nantong in eastern China. Consumers on TikTok want to be entertained, said Young. A K-pop dance may be more likely to keep them in the live streaming room. Shoppers in China are accustomed to turning to live streams for e-commerce, said Yu Yiwei, who runs an agency of fourteen lifestyle influencers helping Chinese vendors sell inside the country through Alibaba Group's online marketplace Taobao, and outside the country through TikTok. On TikTok, however, his influencers need to tell a joke, or drop an interesting nugget about life in China, anything to make the live stream interesting. He said, "You have to treat them like friends living far away." Liu said. Cindy Chen, a merchant based in Guangxi, southern China, almost missed the chance to ride the recent Barbie Pink Mania because of cultural differences. She listed bubblegum pink plastic soda cups with a cursive B for sale on TikTok, after the platform encouraged Chinese sellers to promote pink-colored items. As the Barbie movie, the top-grossing movie in the U.S. so far this year, grew in popularity, she received dozens of orders in the first week of sales. The Barbie movie was hardly the same runway success in China, she said. There's still a difference between what the domestic market demands and what foreigners want. TikTok has shared memos with Chinese suppliers, educating them on how to capitalize on conventional U.S. shopping holidays. Halloween is billed as the children's favorite festival, with vendors encouraged to sell pumpkin-themed products, wigs, and sweets, according to the documents seen by the Wall Street Journal. TikTok said it had been educating vendors on users' interests and demands, and has guidelines to make sure they are compliant with local regulations. Railroads to get 1.4 billion for repairs and upgrades by Esther Fung. Dozens of aging U.S. rail bridges and tracks have been chosen to receive 1.4 billion in federal grants for repairs and upgrades, with businesses and rail commuters expected to benefit from these funds as early as next year. The 70 approved projects, including around 40 that involve bridges, were judged on how they would improve safety. Increase capacity of both freight and passenger railroads, and bring economic benefits to the country. Officials in the Biden administration said in a briefing. The Federal Railroad Administration said it received 234 eligible applications with requests totaling 6.1 billion for the grants. There are more than seventy thousand railroad bridges in the U.S. 
The selected projects span 35 states and the District of Columbia. I think across the country, it's fair to say that people look at America's rail system and correctly say that it needs improvement, said Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, pointing to derailments on freight lines, protracted blocked crossings, and lagging intercity passenger rail. Part of the problem has to do with prior underinvestment in rail infrastructure, he said. The grant program is part of the roughly one trillion infrastructure bill signed by President Biden in 2021. Disagreements over the use of federal funds for rail infrastructure have persisted. Some senators have argued against government assistance, saying the largest freight railroads have made billions in profits and paid billions in stock buybacks and dividends. The freight railroads are operated by publicly listed and private companies that own the tracks, bridges and locomotives. The largest railroads have said that they invest billions in their infrastructure annually and that they are in compliance with federal safety standards. The railroads say federal subsidies aren't necessary for repair projects since they provide a public service moving hazardous materials and other essential goods. The freight railroads operate the majority of the railroad networks in the U.S., including tracks for passenger service. They have spent an average of more than $23 billion annually on their networks in recent years, according to the Association of American Railroads. In the Gulf Coast region, $178 million will be allocated to Amtrak to help restore passenger rail service between Mobile, Alabama, across Mississippi to New Orleans, said White House Infrastructure Coordinator Mitch Landrieu. In New Jersey, FRA is providing a roughly $59 million grant to help pay for the replacement of the Point No Point Bridge owned by Conrail. The 124-year-old swing bridge carries around 7,000 freight cars a day on trains operated by CSX and Norfolk Southern, and a replacement is under construction. Menendez says he won't quit the Senate. Democrat makes his first public remarks since his indictment over alleged bribes by Katie steck Ferrick, Washington. Senator Bob Menendez, Democrat, New Jersey, said he wouldn't resign from Congress and offered an explanation for the large amounts of cash found in his home in his first public remarks since he was indicted by federal prosecutors in a sweeping bribery scheme. I understand how deeply concerning this can be. However, the allegations leveled against me are just that. Allegations, he said. I firmly believe when all the facts are presented, not only will I be exonerated, but I still will be 
the New Jersey senior senator. Many House Democrats have said Menendez should step down, citing the seriousness of the allegations. While three Democratic senators, John Fetterman of Pennsylvania, Peter Welch of Vermont, and Sherrod Brown of Ohio, had joined those calls as of late Monday. Menendez and his wife Nadine Menendez. Were accused by federal prosecutors Friday of receiving bribes starting in 2018 from several businessmen in exchange for favors, including attempting to help influence the outcome of criminal cases, and aiding Egyptian officials in efforts to obtain hundreds of millions of dollars in U.S. aid. In an appearance Monday before reporters, in which he didn't take questions, Menendez offered an explanation for the cash found in his home. Last year, investigators searching his house discovered more than four hundred eighty thousand in cash, much of it stuffed into envelopes and hiding in a safe, closets and clothing, including. A jacket emblazoned with the Senate logo, according to the indictment. For thirty years, I have withdrawn thousands of dollars in cash from my personal savings account, which I have kept for emergencies, and because of the history of my family facing confiscation in Cuba, he said. This may seem old-fashioned, but these were monies drawn from my personal savings account, based on the income that I have lawfully derived over those thirty years. Menendez was born in the U.S. in 1954 to Cuban immigrant parents. Menendez is also accused of passing along sensitive U.S. information and taking other steps to aid the Egyptian government, including its efforts to secure military sales and financing. He also allegedly pressured an agriculture department official to stop opposing a lucrative monopoly Cairo had awarded to a businessman's company to handle the certification of all halal meat exported from the U.S. to Egypt. Menendez said Monday that his record shows that he has repeatedly held Egypt's government accountable for human rights abuses, its growing relationship with Russia, and the erosion of its judiciary. Menendez has maintained he is a victim of a smear campaign and suggested that such a campaign has to do with his Hispanic heritage. On Friday, he said opponents simply cannot accept that a first-generation Latino American from humble beginnings could rise to be a U.S. senator and serve with honor and distinction. The allegation of an improper investigation has gotten little support among Democrats, and a series of Democratic lawmakers and officials said he should resign. Menendez did agree to step down as chairman of the powerful Foreign Relations Committee after the indictment. He is set Wednesday to make an initial appearance in a federal court in New York. 
As a Latina, there are absolutely ways in which there is systemic bias, but I think what is here in this indictment is quite clear, said Rep- Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Democrat New York, on CBS. His resignation would be in the best interest to maintain the integrity of the seat, she said. The charges against Menendez come near the end of his latest six-year term. He is up for re-election next fall. Already, Representative Andy Kim, Democrat, New Jersey, said he is jumping into the Senate race for the Democratic nomination. He posted on social media, Menendez just had a press conference doubling down on his refusal to resign, then we have to beat him in the primary election. Kim's house seat isn't considered competitive. The nonpartisan Cook political report said in a report earlier this year that it would be tough for a Republican challenger to win Menendez's seat in a presidential election year, which is expected to draw Democratic voters to the polls, though Cook said new accusations of wrongdoing could be a wild card. Jessica Taylor, Cook's U.S. Senate editor, said the indictment invites other ambitious state Democrats to challenge Menendez for a seat that doesn't become available often. She said country-level party officials could steer voters away from Menendez by deprioritizing him on the primary ballot. In Milan, designers have 90s flashback. Rory Saturn. I don't remember anything, joked Donatella Versace, discussing the 1990s at a preview of her spring runway show in Milan. Of course she does, which is why next season's collection was built around the year 1995, a time she described as both a turning point for the House of Versace and for fashion at large, when styles became more minimalist and cleaner. They also became sexier as the shoulder pads and gaudy prints of the late 80s receded into the rearview mirror in favour of slip dresses and lots of leg. Fashion's mid-90s moment, with its strutting supermodels and attention-grabbing style, loomed large in Milan this season. That could be due to a TikTok-fueled grab for a 90s-obsessed Gen Z market, or just pure nostalgia for that high-water mark of Italian fashion. In 1995, when Versace paired its pop back, Tom Ford was ushering in a lucrative and boundary-pushing period at Gucci, hiring collaborators Karin Hartfeld and Mario Testino to create the Not Safe for Work campaigns. That same year, Mutia Prada won the VH1 Designer of the Year award. She had recently launched Mew Mew. While Ford enjoys his extensive real estate portfolio these days, rather than toiling away in fittings, his influence can be felt at his former workplaces Gucci and Tom Ford. 
Prada 74 is still firing on all cylinders as one of the most talented and successful global designers, with the help of co-creative director Raf Simmons. Prada's Tour de Force The magic potion of Prada and Simmons, along with outgoing longtime design director Fabio Zambonardi, is their ability to churn out covetable, infinitely purchasable items, while still remaining creatively interesting. Backstage after the show, Simon said, We thought a lot about history. There were a lot of references from different periods of the brand. So yes, Prada's 90s period was palpable in the form of floaty organza and gazelle dresses in pale blue mint and petal pink that recalled Uma Thurman's diaphanous 1995 Oscar dress. But Prada and Simmons spun the brand's history in a blender, also throwing in 1913 with a puckered handbag featuring a mythical head clasp originally designed by the brand's co-founder, Mario Prada. We wanted to focus on the work, the methods and techniques, the value, said Prada. Those feats were impressive, from preppy barn jackets aged through five treatments to silver and gold-dipped jewellery skirts that took up to five days to make. Versace's glossy trip down memory lane... The mood board for Versace's spring show was an explosion of 90s pastel looks from the brand's archives, some of them shot by longtime brand collaborator Richard Avedon on Gianni Versace's muses, like Nadia Auermann and Claudia Schiffer. Despite Donatella Versace's joke that she remembers nothing, her brand is a testament to living with the past, without being swallowed by it. The collection included a jacket inspired by one originally made for prints and a pale checkerboard print first issued in the 90s. In fact, 68-year-old Versace wore a miniskirt in that print to take her bow, illustrating that sometimes the most convincing case for clothing is proving that you'd wear it yourself. Gucci's New Era The stakes could not have been higher for Gucci's new creative director, Sabato de Sarno, who took over from Alessandro Michele earlier this year. De Sarno, 40, inherited Kering's 10 billion a year jewel, as well as the hope that he could reverse its recent downturn. In his first outing, DeSarno appears to be betting on a simplified sensuality expressed through a procession of bra tops, mini skirts, and deep decollete tops worn with gold marina chain necklaces. The shoe collection, a key sales converter under Michele, was dominated by platform horsebit loafers. Desana's show notes said he was inspired by giddy images of cool people of all ages. A cryptic yet inclusive message. Ford's sense of deja vu. Peter Hawkins, creative director of Tom Ford, spent 25 years working for Mr. Ford, 
first at Gucci and then at Tom Ford, Hawkins helped to create the recognisable Ford silhouette of sharp suits for men and women, silky button-ups, open to their, and Halstonish slinky gowns. Although he has professed a responsibility to move the brand forward, Hawking's first take on Ford was more of an homage than a reinterpretation. It even included an approximation of the 1997 velvet Gucci suit made iconic by Gwyneth Paltrow and Madonna. There's no question that 90s Italian fashion in Italy was sexy, fresh, and powerful the first time around, but to succeed again, it must be reimagined. Chat GPT can now talk aloud with you. Joanna Stern You'll have two reactions to hearing my conversation with the now vocal Chat GPT. One, holy crap. This is the future of communicating with computers that sci-fi writers promised us. Two, I'm building an underground bunker and stockpiling toilet paper and granola bars. Yes, OpenAI's popular chatbot is speaking up, literally. The company on Monday announced an update to its iOS and Android apps that will allow the artificially intelligent bot to talk aloud in five different voices. I've been doing a lot of talking with ChatGPT over the past few days and testing another new tool that lets the bot respond to images you show it. So what's it like? Think Siri or Alexa, except not. The natural voice, the conversational tone, and the eloquent answers are almost indistinguishable from a human at times. Remember Her, the movie where Joaquin Phoenix falls in love with an AI operating system that's really a faceless Scarlett Johansson? That's the vibe I'm talking about. It's not just typing is tedious. Joanne Zhang, a product lead at OpenAI, told me in an interview. You can now have two-way conversations. The new photo compression tool, comprehension tool, also makes the bot more interactive. You can snap a shot and ask chat GPT questions about it. Spoiler, it's terrible at tic-tac-toe. The image and voice features will be available over the next few weeks for those who subscribe to ChatGPT Plus for $20 a month. In essence, OpenAI is giving its chatbot a mouth and eyes. I've been running both features through tests, a best friend chat, plumbing repairs, games. It's all very cool and creepy. The mouth. While the system is just reading back a chat GPT text response, this isn't the robotic staid text-to-speech systems we've grown up with. There are five available voices and each of them sounds like a real human is talking to you. There's cadence, intonation and personality. These voices were generated from just a few seconds of sample speech provided by professional voice actors, Zhang told me. Those samples are then run through OpenAI's computer models to create text-to-speech voices. 
Remember my column and video where I used AI tools to clone my voice? It's like that, but better. OpenAI says it is collaborating with some other organizations, allowing them to develop synthetic voices. It's working with Spotify on a tool that helps translate podcasters' voices into other languages. Given how easy it could be to clone someone's voice with just seconds of audio for the safety of the entire internet and really the world, the company says it is only available to business partners right now. Could that change in the future? Good luck to us all. Unlike Siri or Alexa, Alexa, there's no wake word to summon ChatGPT. In the app's settings menu, enable voice conversations, and then tap the headphone icon in the app's upper right corner. A white circle morphs into a comic book style thought bubble, as the f- system listens for your prompt. There's a button to tap to interrupt lengthy responses. I have been captivated by it all. The natural voice, combined with the advanced answers and the system's knowledge of me, makes it feel like I'm having a real conversation. When I asked it to pretend to be my best friend and talk to me, we had a solid five-minute chat about my day at work, video production, and the snacks we like. Same when I asked it to explain Pokemon to me, like I'm, I'm a six-year-old. But you are definitely still talking to a machine. The response time can be extremely slow, and the connection can fail. Restarting the apps fail. Restarting the app helps. A few times, it abruptly cut off the conversation. I thought only rude humans did that. OpenAI says that the issues I encountered were due to an early version of the app I was given to test, and that consumers shouldn't experience them. The eyes. If voice gives ChatGPT the ability to talk to the world, the new camera feature gives the bot the ability to see it. Instead of describing something in words, you can now tap the button in the iOS, Android, and web apps. Unload or snap a photo. Circle the area you want the AI to focus on and ask a question. Here were some images I tried: broken house stuff, a shot of the leaking hose in my garage, with just the prompt "How do I fix this?" Quickly returned several seven steps, including wrapping the threads on the connection with Teflon tape. Food. A photo of a moldy strawberry with a question: "Can I eat this?" Great advice. No. A photo of bananas, eggs, and non-moldy strawberries with a question: "What can I make with this?" Great advice. Strawberry banana pancakes. Injuries and health issues. It quickly recognized a cut on my son's cheek as a mark or rash, but said, "I cannot help with that." And it's best to consult with a medical professional. Games and puzzles. A photo of a stalemate in tic tac toe. Chat GPT didn't know the game was over, 
It said to place my ex in the already occupied bottom center. It said I would win and even added an exclamation mark and confetti emoji. Wrong. That's what we really have to remember at this moment in the AI revolution. As the lines continue to blur between human and bot interactions, these systems can lack context and depth, and are often wrong. As my new ChatGPT voice friend said to me, "While I sound conversational, remember I'm just processing data. Always use your judgment, especially for important matters."